0: Hello and welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast, I'm Ian Welsh. While I was in Amsterdam recently at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, I spoke with some of the session panellists and participants to get some expert reflections on the conference discussions and to hear a bit about what they'd learned from the conference's two days. So, coming up, we have Anna Terrell from Tesco, Anita Neville from Golden Agri Resources, Craig Triboulay from April. Glenn Horowitz from Mighty Earth, Josh Tosteson from Everland, Patrick Hubri from Airbus, Michael Hendricks from Farmstrong Foundation, Eliza Menguzo from PGGM, and Innovation Forum Senior Associate Peter Stanbury. I'm at the Sustainable Landscapes and Quantities Forum in Amsterdam and joining me is Anna Terrell, Interim Sustainability Director with Tesco. Welcome Anna. Thank you Ian. We've just had a really interesting session looking at how businesses are outlining their 2030, 2040, 2050 targets. How are you doing that at Tesco?
1: We've got established science-based targets. We put these in place back in 2017 and that links back to our net zero commitment. We're actually going through the process now of revalidating those science-based targets using the new FLAG guidance that was issued this year. Hopefully. By the end of the year, we will have targets in place for our scope three, for our four biggest scope three emissions hotspots, if you like, supply chains, and that will then map out for us what that interim pathway needs to look like for things such as beef, dairy, poultry, and pork. But obviously we can still carry on doing the work whilst we wait for those targets. And what we're really focused in on is our emission hotspots within Scope 3 and what we're calling the big bets. So that includes low carbon fertilizer, methane reducing additives. It's looking at the role that dietary shifts can play as well as obviously, importantly, ensuring that we can eliminate deforestation and land conversion within our supply chains and reducing food loss and waste. So there's a lot there, but very practically focused in the interim as we wait for those targets. Indeed,
0: that's a really interesting point that came out of the session was, if you are going to have a focus in 2050, what you really should be thinking about is 2030, because you won't get to a 2050 net zero situation unless you really hit your targets for 2030. So what are the barriers then that you're seeing at Tesco to you achieving your targets?
1: Well, I think a lot of it's to do with data, right? And particularly when we think about scope three, more than 30% of our scope three emissions footprints, it's in our agricultural supply chains. We're really dependent on those actors within those agri supply chains to be able to understand, access, capture, monitor data, to be able to actually share that down the supply chain. If we don't have good data and robust methodologies, then it's really difficult to know how and where we're having an impact. It requires, a real collective effort to build capacity and understanding within the supply chain to be able to support doing that in a coherent way data i would say is the perennial issue but it it very much is so when it comes to agri emissions
0: i'm sure we'll be hearing a lot about data over the next couple of days anna terrell from tesco thanks very much indeed thanks so much I'm with Anita Neville from Goldmig Resources. Welcome, Anita. Hi, Ian. You made a really interesting point in this session just now here at the conference. You said that the last two decades have been about conservation, but the next two decades are going to be about people. Why is that?
2: I think the reality is that over the last two decades, there's been a huge amount of investment and focus on how we tackle environmental issues and specifically in the palm sector and for actually a lot of agri-commodities, deforestation how do we prevent it, how do we spot it, and then how do we prevent it? And what that has resulted in, apart from no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation commitments, has been greater investment in satellite technology, monitoring and transparency initiatives, and then the follow-up mechanisms to act on whatever alerts come out of those systems. We haven't seen in the same period a sort of corresponding investment in the people side of the equation. And I think what we're starting to see now is like this pinch point where actually for the last sort of 10 percent of deforestation that we need to tackle in these agri commodities and particularly in palm the real challenge is people oriented it's about poverty and inequality and social justice organizations tend to be very localized and fragmented and they haven't campaigned in quite the same way as their environmental cousins but i think that's changing We're seeing that with Modern Slavery Act in Britain, with human rights due diligence legislation coming through in Europe and the US. And so I think the next two decades is really going to be about how we solve for people.
0: I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing so many of the solutions that are coming out, perhaps in carbon finance, for example. All the solutions are talking about being people centric and bottom up, dealing with the people on the ground in digital communities. Let's hope that next time we talk about these things, we're talking about even more people based solutions. But I
2: really hope so. I hope I have many more things to tell you about what we're doing at GAR in this space.
0: Anything, Neville, many thanks. My pleasure. Joining me at the Sustainable Landscapes and Communities Forum is Craig Triboulet from April. Welcome, Craig. Good morning. We talked a bit over the event about roadmap. So what is April's roadmap to 2030,
3: 2040, 2050 look like? April's roadmap is called April 2030, and it was developed after about 18 months, nearly two years of negotiation with management and operational teams to ensure that we could set targets across land, environment, and people that were operationally implementable, challenging, and really stretched targets for the team. We ended up with 18 deliverable targets that are now embedded in operational managers KPI, and we report on those annually, but really targeting our 2030 as our end point. And that's not to ignore 2040, 2050. I think it's a recognition of that urgency that action needs to be taken now. The investment needs to be front-ended if we want to deliver on 2030, 2040, and 2050 commitments.
0: Yeah, that's certainly something I'm hearing a lot over the last couple of days, is that if we're going to think about 2050, 2030 is going to be the really important, that's what we could target right now. Mm.
3: Well, in fact, we heard it in one of the sessions this morning, 2030 actually means 2025 and having that infrastructure, the investments, the target setting and the action on the ground needs to be happening now if you want to meet those 2030 targets. Yeah, it's
0: great to see there's a real sense of urgency. Creative Relief from April, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. I'm with Mighty Earth's Glenn Horowitz. Welcome, Glenn. Good to be back with you, Ian. We've just been talking about, obviously, deforestation the last couple of days, and you made a really interesting point in the session just now. You said that on deforestation, it's important to have a positive agenda and to be starting things, not just stopping things. Yep. What do you mean by that? And how do you think, see this moving forward?
4: I think, first of all, we have to recognize the enormous success that has happened, especially with the Southeast Asian commodities. Palm oil, pulp and paper, rubber, have all experienced above 90% declines in deforestation. I think not enough people know about this. This is a gigaton scale climate success, millions of acres conserved. So that's really great. But the reality is there's 50,000 square miles of forest that have been destroyed over the last few decades to expand area for production of these commodities. Uh, These companies, these industries have a huge legacy to make up. There's so many degraded lands across the Tropic, 125 million hectares that could be and should be restored. That can suck a lot of carbon out of the air. So far, we've had the success in stopping deforestation, but not actually making this positive contribution to actually rewild the planet. And that's what we hope both companies and governments will contribute to.
0: That could make an enormous difference. You're absolutely right. Glenn Horowitz, thanks very much indeed. Thanks so much. Joining me is Josh Austin from Everland. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Ian. Great to be here. We've just been talking about the voluntary carbon markets. Why don't you give us a snapshot of where the voluntary carbon markets are right
5: now? The voluntary carbon markets are really in an extraordinary place. We've seen an explosion of demand over the last couple of years and it couldn't come at a better time in relationship to the Glasgow leaders' declaration to end deforestation by 2030. Unprecedented amounts of finance are flowing in for forest protection at a community level and this is really a game changer. Is the supply going to keep up with the demand though? My hope is that the demand, and hope is not a strategy, our strategy is to leverage that demand to create as much supply as quickly as possible because that's what the world needs.
0: Where are these projects that are going to drive these carbon credits
5: and verified emission reductions, where are these projects going to be located? Well, there are threatened landscapes all over the world. In the Americas, in the Amazon, in the Congo, in the Asian rainforests. And through transformative partnerships, like the one between Hartree and Wildlife Works Carbon, with $2 billion committed, Wildlife Works, one of the premier developers of the world, can go to governments and communities with full financing into threatened landscapes and offer something that is a really compelling alternative. So that's a template for the kind of thing that can be scaled up right now.
0: Well, there's a lot to do. But Josh Huston from Everland, thanks so much for your time.
5: Thank you so much, Ian. appreciate it. Joining me now
0: is Patrick Coudray, who's Head of Sales, Agriculture and Forest Solutions at Airbus. Patrick, we've just been on a session looking at where the cutting edge of remote sensing and satellite monitoring is. What are the advances that you're seeing in how big data and satellite monitoring can drive sustainable supply chains?
6: What we have heard today is that satellite imagery is clearly a solution that has been adopted by almost everyone. There is still a long way to go to fully leverage what remote sensing can deliver with new instruments. A lot of questions about access to the data, to what extent it's worth investing in that technology, but I see bright days for remote sensing in the future. What we have heard as well today is that remote sensing to fully leverage all the capacity we have today, using the open source data as well as commercial data, as the one we deliver in Airbus, will call for more collaboration. Collaboration across supply chain, collaboration with Act collaboration with practitioners, and also to get the, the lesson learned from single projects, as the one presented by Jen, which was really, really relevant, but also the feedback from companies moving forward. What we have seen with our experience and starting is that the journey has started with, I would say, not simple uh, question questions where remote sensing can clearly play a role, it's uh, what is deforestation in my supply chain, and today they are in th- still in the learning curve regarding uh, what remote sensing can do for them, but more and more we see new demands also mirroring the fact that the companies are required to do more every day because of regulation, because of good practices that comes out from uh, collaborative space as a good forum or the SBTI.
0: Indeed it was really interesting to hear all the different types of solutions that are being put forward, and also where remote sensing can help. I mean, there was a, a discussion around the use of remote sensing and helping around establishing the carbon markets and developing more, perhaps not regulation, but kind of more oversight of the carbon markets as we go forward. But certainly there's, there's a lot to do and a lot of solutions coming down the track. But for now, Patrick Hudry from Airbus, thank you very much. Thank okay. <laughs> you. Joining me is Michael Hendricks from the FarmStrong Foundation. So, Michael, we're going to be talking a bit about smallholder farmers and how they can gain access to the carbon markets and benefits from the carbon markets. What are the keys for smallholder farmers benefiting from the carbon
7: markets? It's, of course, very potentially, put it that way now, a source of revenue. Uh, the interesting thing of, of carbon, now, if you compare it with, with their normal commodities, the agricultural commodities, uh, you can actually do the payouts now off-season. So when it gets really tight for farmers, now you have this additional amount of money you, you can pay to them. Uh, you can also split these payments. Uh, so what we do, we pay part of that money you know, when it gets uh, the tightest part of the year is July, August, and then we have 25% for an extra payment just before the kids go to school. Uh, so you try to combine uh, that part. And the fact that it's uh, basically you, know, you are now uh, getting out of the normal commodity cycle. Uh, I think that's also important. So uh, where you have uh, prices can move up and down. Uh, so if you have m- more commodities you now you basically you know, could neutralize movements of the other. Sure. And I think specifically in specific carbon, I think the future looks very bright. Uh, so I think that the price of carbon will now continue to appreciate over the next years t- to come, uh, which is beneficial to the farmers. I think often in smaller programs we see uh, is farmers have seldom, smaller farmers have seldom really an incentive to do what we expect them to do, uh, because now uh, they don't get any more money, they, they don't produce much more, and if they produce more, uh, the price is getting lower. And I think when we talk about uh, agroforestry systems and transformation agroforestry systems, it will actually induce the farmer to start doing actually more of these good agricultural practices, because it will give you more uh, revenues on the carbon side, but at the same time if you do better agriculture practice, like pruning and cocoa, coffee and, and so forth, you get also more of your primary product, so it's actually quite a few additional advantages than you would say on the first side.
0: It does feel like it's the way that farmers, smaller farmers in particular, can benefit from the nature-based solutions that yep. we're
7: talking about so much. Yeah, yeah. it is coming from something which is on itself really a positive activity. Now, if you, if you grow trees, if you plant uh, trees, uh, indigenous forest species, I, I don't think you should uh, grow teak or eucalyptus or other stuff, but now indigenous forest uh, species they absorb the CO2 and the guys get paid for it eh? so I think I rarely use uh, the the win-win situation but I think this is like win-win-win you know everybody is to gain
0: yeah it does feel like that
7: isn't it for now Michael Uh Hendricks from
0: the Farmsong Foundation thanks very much Okay. joining me now is Eloisa Mengoso from PGGM Welcome Eloisa, why don't you introduce yourself and PGGM?
2: PGGM is an asset manager and I'm here actually also with Sophie Campaos from MN. Together we represent some of the largest institutional investors in Europe and we invest their capital.
0: As an asset manager, what do you want companies to be doing on deforestation and in terms of thinking around sustainable commodities in their supply chain?
2: Yeah, First of all, we want to highlight that this is a very important topic for us and for peers in the Netherlands. Biodiversity and deforestation are incredibly key themes for us. At a PGM, and man joins us in this message. We expect companies that source of commodities to implement solid policies to mitigate deforestation risk but also to invest in supporting farmers' livelihood and sustainable sourcing.
0: Well, let's hope that we see more of that over the coming years. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you so much.
0: I'm joined by Peter Stanbury, Associate with Innovation Forum. Welcome, Peter. As always, a pleasure to see you. This morning, you had a session or you're running a session looking at the right balance between regulation and incentives Mm. to end commodity-driven deforestation. What is the right balance then to achieve that? I think the
8: distinct feeling that came out of the meeting was that the balance has gone too far in the direction of regulation. That actually sometimes that regulation could potentially be actively harmful. There are requirements being put on companies which are potentially onerous about doing things they're already doing. And it's not clear that that's going to have a sort of corollary benefit in terms of increased proportions of sustainable product coming into the EU. What's the answer then? The answer seems to be that the governments have got to step up more. There seems to be a feeling that governments, by which we mean the EU, the Americans, the British, simply aren't engaging sufficiently with some of the sort of detailed issues on the ground, you know, historic issues on the ground in some of these countries, the legal structures in those areas, that there's much more need for governments to step up into this area and government government collaboration. So
0: cooperation around better regulation, perhaps. Regulation is still a large part of the solution, but it's better regulation,
8: or regulation better enforced, perhaps. It's regulation better enforced, but it's also looking at other things that may be going on in those countries which are unhelpful, perhaps historic ways of supporting smallholder farmers, which might have made sense 20 or 30 years ago, but which now actually become problematic. A lot to talk about,
0: as ever, at the conference today and for tomorrow, but for now, Peter Stanbury, thanks very much. Thanks for watching. Many thanks to all of our participants for taking the time to share their insights. That's it for now. I'm Irene Welsh, and goodbye.